This podcast is made in association with DrunkMummySoberMummy.com and Cuppa.community, the free social network for the sober and sober curious. Oh, the kettle's boiled. Great. Perfect timing. Should we get started then? I'm Victoria Vanstone. I'm Lucy Good. And this is Sober Awkward. Right, Lucy, over to you. Thanks, Vic. So whatever stage you're at on your sober journey, and Vic and I are at completely different stages, you'll know that life without booze can at times feel, what do you reckon? Awkward. Lucy and I invite you to listen to our podcast where we discuss the realities of sobriety, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the cringingly embarrassing. Our honest and open chats will help you discover what it really means to be sober. Yes, we're here like a dodgy bottle of port from your nan's drink cabinet to take the edge off sobriety and together we can learn how to feel the awkward and do it anyway. What happened then, Alan? Well, I don't know. I woke up in this hotel that I was uh, staying in for work and I suddenly remembered this dream running around the hotel naked being chased by a security guard. And then when I went down for breakfast, I realised it wasn't a dream. Oh, God, was everyone looking at you, were they? Yep. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Work-related nakedness is never a good thing, is it? Oh, I'm so excited to be here today, everybody, in the booth, as usual. It's like my special time away from the family more than anything else. Um, I'm here today with my sister, Louise, which is very exciting. And we're talking a little bit about what Alan has just mentioned about work-related misdemeanours and alcohol. Um, Yes, so I have my sister with me today. So my sister Louise is here. Hello, Louise. Hi, Vicky. Yes, put your your posh voice on now because it's time. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Louise is my lovely sister who is 23 years sober. And we have a very similar drinking style. We're both party girls with no off switches. Louise went to AA over two decades ago and has not looked back since. Louise is now a professional singer and a sound healer, but has a past life working in the advertising industry in London. I haven't asked her to come on. I've asked her to come on the show today, not only because she's a sober, sober superhero, but she also has lots of experience in the topic we are discussing today. So thank you, Louise, for coming on. I can't believe you're here. Uh, I, I am just so thrilled to be here. I just can't tell you. I am a massive super fan of your podcast, obviously. Of course. Because it's amazing. It's helping so many people. It's reaching so many more people. And uh, your and Lucy's banter is just completely hilarious and so relatable. Um, so I'm happy to be here. And also, there was nothing like this when I was getting sober. So it's so great we're doing this together. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's so lovely. It's so exciting. Thank you for being here. I just wanted to give the... Before we get stuck into the nitty-gritty, Louise, I just wanted to tell the listeners a little bit about Cuppa, which is going really well. It's the community that I've built for the Sober Awkward crew. So go on there. It's www.cuppa.community. There's loads of new courses on there this week. There's a meditation course. There's a Dry July course. You you can go on there and talk about this podcast when you finish listening to it and meet loads of other cool sober people. So please go on to the couple dot community people and join up because the more people on there, the bigger community we can build and it'll just be amazing. So you're probably wondering what we're talking about today, but Alan's story kind of gave it away a bit. He's been telling us all of his awful pissed up work stories and one of them did involve him ending up in the in the reception of a restaurant completely naked in a hotel lobby. Uh, I think that might have happened to someone we know too, Louise. We won't mention any names, but there is somebody in our family who I think woke up and had to go down to a lobby naked after peeing in a in a pot plant, I seem to vaguely remember. I wonder who that I wonder be. who it is. We won't mention any names. So our topic today <laughs> is about drinking and work environments. Why is it that some jobs, actually most jobs, encourage heavy boozing. You're either going for a midweek bender with the office lot, having a few tinnies with mates after being in the tools all day, or gearing up for the big all day or after a long working week. Our jobs and the futures of our careers can depend on how many beers we buy the boss, our after work booze banter, and our drinking stamina. What do you think, Lou? Oh my goodness, that's so true. 
every job that I've ever had has always involved after work bevies or big nights out with colleagues or weekends away. It didn't matter which line of work I was in. They all seemed to push drinking as if it was part of the contract. God, yeah, we may as well sign our lives away, Lou, mightn't we? At a very young age, I think. Definitely. Yeah. We were in training right from the start. (laughs) We were in booze training. It was like a military... (laughs) Booze camp. Yeah, yeah, booze camp. Um, The reason we wanted to address this issue today is because Louise and I were part of these cultures. We were part of... We were like top dogs in booze camp, weren't we? We both see now, in hindsight, how destructive it was to our work ethic and our mental health, actually. I really feel like I could have been so much more productive in my work life and life in general if I hadn't been so wasted and hungover. Yes, absolutely. We both experienced the impact of alcohol on our productivity and the anxiety-ridden aftermath of sleeping with the nerdy guy in accounts. Not me. Yeah, sorry, that was probably me. There was a few nerdy guys in accounts who had notches on my bedpost. (laughs) Not all at once. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Alcohol certainly has a lot to answer for. Any six days that I ever had were due to overdoing it at the Christmas party or because I could never go home until the sun was rising. My last man or woman standing trait meant that work came very secondarily to my hangover. I know, it's crazy that, isn't it? I cannot believe that I basically put booze before my career. I mean, for my entire life, Lou, I'm talking about. Lynn from admin always knew if there was a big work do, I'd be on the phone making up ridiculous excuses why I wasn't coming in. Both our drinking, in work time and out of work time, caused massive fallout, sickies, it affected my brain function, caused us to make mistakes and probably gave us bad reputations. I mean, I'm sure I wasn't renowned for being an amazing worker. It ruined deals with customers. We made tits out of ourselves. We dribbled on potential clients. I mean, God, I even lost jobs over my wily ways. There are so many negative repercussions of drinking booze within the workplace. It affected my bank balance even, Louise. Everything I did in my life had fallout, which I only realise now. The fact I never really had a proper job because of my boozing probably means I won't have any money when I retire now. Like, what am I going to do? I have to rely on my nice husband to, to keep me in the, in the cash flow. But yeah, it, my workplace affects everything and it affects what money you have in the pocket at the end of the day, which is huge. It's such a massive impact that alcohol has on our work careers and I see that now even more clearly. It's it's just amazing and it's subtle things that we don't even think about at the time that have such long-term effects. Yeah. So, yes, today we want to find out why drinking and working seem to go hand in hand and are there any ways your employers can make your work environment more accepting of the non-drinker? Yep, today we're going to tell you all of our awful experiences, our failed ambitions, our humiliating office faux pas, of course, reveal the top 10 most toxic boozy jobs, and because we always like to end on a happy note, not that sort of happy note, Louise, this isn't that sort of booth, we're also going to tell you what it's like working now that we are both very smugly sober. Very smug indeed. Yes, today you're going to get the Vanstone Masterclass in saying no at work functions and hear all the benefits of being sober at your desk rather than retching into the recycle bin. Today we want you to go away knowing that over-drinking and working can be a sacking just waiting to happen and knowing that sobriety means you will excel in everything you do. Woohoo! Yes. Happy days! Yes, happy days. You like that woohoo in there. It sounds it sound genuine. Woohoo! Woohoo! It's my favourite, actually. I like saying woohoo. Woohoo! I think we just want to go over our ambitions, Louise, because we've already gathered from that from that intro that we had ambitions at one stage, and perhaps that alcohol sort of drowned out any young ambition that we had. When you were a little kid, Louise, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, one of the things, one of the main things, was I wanted to be an actress, and I'm now going to quote from my now legendary pink fluffy diary that I wrote when I was 12. I think I read it when I was. It's very, very four. good reading. It's very, very, very exciting memoir. And I quote Today I begin the long journey to the top, the journey to fame and fortune. I want to be an actress. <laughs> And that is word for word what's in my diary. And now I look back, I know that this was a genuine desire and a genuine yearning to be some sort of performer. And I, I dabbled at the beginning and then 
yeah, got into alcohol and all of those ambitions, all of that creativity, all of that yearning was put on hold and numbed out until it couldn't stay quiet any longer but that's another story but yes it's funny isn't it because we grow up thinking like we know what we want to be and we're asked at school and we have all these ambitions and I remember you know I'd go in and see the 90s career advisor and I'd be like I want to do this 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 I want to be a vet I want to be this I want to be a doctor and then by the time you reach the point to actually make those final decisions is the same point that alcohol starts to trickle into your life because of teenage confidence issues or because that's what everyone else around you is doing at school so it's actually at the most crucial point in your life where you're making these decisions as to what you want to do forever is when alcohol starts to sort of stunt you doesn't it that's exactly it. It's at that crucial time you're making those decisions and your mind is completely not on anything like that. It's on get down the pub, meet that bloke, yeah. get pissed. Yeah. And that's it. And that's where the brain goes. I don't know whether it's a yeah. psychological thing happens as well at, yeah. that, at that age. But yeah, and it's all to do with your confidence and to do with what's going on around you and your environment and to do with drinking culture. Everything at that time is sort of pushing you towards the drink rather than pushing you towards making good decisions because you're feeling rebellious, you're fed up at home, all of those reasons. When I was growing up, I wasn't quite as ambitious as you. I didn't want to be an actress. I wanted to be one of the ladies in the windows. <laughs> which, which, when we lived in Belgium as a kid, my parents used to drive us round the red light district and show us the ladies in the windows who, who were there getting business. But I didn't realise, I just thought they were friendly ladies that sat in windows that I used to wave at from the back of the car. And actually, of course, I realised now that they were prostitutes. So that was what I was wanting to grow up to be. And I was from a very young age. And they even asked me at school, what do you want to be when you're older? And I said I wanted to be one of the ladies in the windows in Belgium. <laughs> what a wholesome outing. I know, what a lovely family one. day out that family was. Family day out yep. to the red light district. And then I wanted to be in advertising like you because I watched you and how successful you were. And I thought, oh, gosh, she's so cool. I want to be, you know, like Louise and working in London. But of course, as we talked about, my mind got fed all this information about what I should be and what I compared it to what I wanted to be. And I wanted to be in art and I wanted to do an art foundation and, and build and be a designer and all these kind of artsy fartsy things. But society was telling me something different that I had to do sort of a marketing job or or do something that was a bit more important than an arty job because you didn't really make money in arty jobs. So I think a lot of my feelings of what I really wanted were repressed from a young age because I was told you'll never make money in that business. And the careers advisor said, oh no, you can't, you can't do art you're not going to ever have a career in that so you may as well give that up now and do a do a job in the city or something and of course I didn't want to do a job in the city what about you yeah no I, I really relate to that and the fact is also then you're going to be using booze because you're not doing exactly what exactly. you want so you're not having that yeah. passion you're just going oh I'm, I'm doing this particular job and what, whatever offers it is and there's no distraction of oh I'm going to stay a bit late and put some more into this work because I absolutely love it. You're just going, work, I'm working to earn money so that I can drink. And yeah. then that perpetuates. There's less interests in your life, there's less passion, and then as that dwindles, then drinking becomes the most important thing. That's, I really relate to yeah. what you said there. Yeah, Definitely. So if you don't have passion for something, your interest in it will dwindle very quickly. So therefore, you're going to be looking for other ways to fulfil your life that is not related to your work. Whereas in fact, what we've both discovered is that when you're sober, you have passion for things and work is something that becomes very, very important in your life because you feel so much more productive. We'll talk a bit about that later on. But yeah, we were both... You you know, had really big ambitions from a young age. I had an opportunity to go to an amazing university, but I failed all my exams because drinking became more important. So my my drinking was already affecting my life when I was 18 and affecting those big decisions. So what jobs did we end up do doing, Louise? Like what what is our calamitous curriculum vitae? What were some of the awful things that happened in, in our work-related lives? Okay, yeah, this is a good one. This is a good one. So as Vicky said earlier on, I was in advertising in London and in uh, Sydney as well in Australia. Um, and just to give you an overview of the sort of culture that I was in, 
I definitely chose the right industry because drinking was definitely part of the culture. For example, we had Mary O.T., who was the wonderful Irish tea lady, and she would do all the teas. And then um, if we won a pitch, which was quite regular, there was a celebration, we would hear the clinking of the glasses. We'd know if we'd won because we'd hear the clinking of the glasses on the drinks trolley. The teacups would be put away. The glasses and the bottle of wine and the bowls of peanuts would come out. And we'd all hang around the full-size snooker table in the centre of the office. So the fact that we have a full-size snooker table yeah. says a lot about where the interests lay. So that was uh, was actually, I've got to say, if, you, if you're going to be wanting to drink, it was good fun at the time around that table. But then we wouldn't be able to get home. We'd have to get taxis. We'd be blind drunk. So that's just saying that advertising environment was so toxic for a big drinker, wasn't it? It was very toxic. And I was also surrounded by so many people who were, you know, I didn't notice I had a problem because everyone was drinking in the same ways as me. So, yes, some more highlights. Um, I had a really massive hangover. And uh, sometimes I used to order, there, cheers, clients, order a taxi on the client's bill. Mm. And I snuck downstairs and they said, your car's arrived. And I went down to the front of the agency and they'd ordered a huge stretch limo. And everyone was looking out the window and I ran into the car, ducked down and said to the driver, drive, drive, drive. <laughs> I was, and I was so sheepish, I felt so ill. Uh, another one, again, massive hangover, called another taxi in the morning to go to a client meeting about an hour away. And I got into the car and the driver said, oh, excuse me, miss, do you think we could stop at a shop? I think you should buy some mints because you've got really bad booze breath. Oh, no. <laughs> And so I went to the meet, got the mints, went in with minty fresh breath, sat down and we had these big boards where we had the ads hmm. that we were presenting to the client. I think it was for cat food, Felix yeah. cat food or something. And um, I was so hungover and shaky that I decided that I actually couldn't talk. I felt so ill. So I just hid behind the boards that I was holding up and I allowed my partner, Ashley, who was... The- <laughs> doing the art side of things and he did all the talking and I I actually contributed nothing apart from standing there whole, hiding behind the board. So yes, uh, another highlight as well, another thing I'm very proud of, I, after a particularly boozy work do that went on most of the night, I came to in a hotel room with a work colleague um, don't know what happened. I don't actually think anything had happened. Oh, I think no. I'd crashed out, but I was so sheepish and then I realised the time and I said, quick, we've got to go, we've got to go. And I said, I've got to, let's wash our faces. And there were these um, face wipes there. So we got these face wipes and wiped our faces with them and then got out onto the street. And then I realised that they were the shoe polish wipes. <laughs> they had sticky faces. Oh, my God. We had this shoe polish all over our faces. So I sneakily snuck off walk, walking back to the office to go to work. I think it was oh, a Friday the morning. The shame was just unbelievable. And then I got into the office. Everyone else was probably out doing... You know, wild and crazy things but me here of course muggins the first person i see is someone who spotted me oh, no. walking towards i was about seven o'clock it was really early i was walking back to the office and he went mm, you look like you had a good time last night oh no the uh, shame the humiliation absolute shame oh that's smug i hate it when people say things like that it's just so horrible. This makes you feel about ten times worse. Like, I know what you've done. You're a naughty person. Dear, oh dear. Shoe polish on your face. That is so random. It was random. And I was just all uncoordinated and shaky and weird. Oh, and horrible. But putting on an act that I, everything was fine. Can and- you tell me the story? I'm just going to say the word jockey, Louise. I think there is a funny story about someone we know, uh, a work-related misdemeanor. Okay, yeah, this is a legend, and it's uh, a legendary story, actually from my ex-husband, and this is a friend of his, so this is a real story. So his friend was working for a legal firm, he was a lawyer, and they had a big function at the office, and they they were having a barbecue and a, a pig roast. Sorry, vegetarians, including me. It's not a very nice image, but yes, they had a pig roast and lots of booze flowing. And he broke into one of the rooms, which was an evidence room, and they had um, he was working on a very high-profile case of a jock with a jockey involving a jockey, and he stole the jockey's cap and whip from the evidence room. It was in a, all in a sealed bag, and it was oh ready God, to go. Yeah. And it was part of the 
evidence and the people at the party turned around and there he was they'd pig roast they'd called it down and he was sat at the top with the jockey riding the pig riding the pig and with the whip (laughs) and i think that might have affected the case and probably ended his career there oh my god riding the pig roast (laughs) i mean imagine waking up the next morning and remembering that that flashing into your brain it's funny how we you know, we look back, all of the jobs that I had, like all of your jobs were all in advertising, all these things that happened, weren't they? Because it was so rife within that business. And for me, when I look back on my jobs, it's so similar. Like you were in the same business for a long time. But I did lots of different jobs that involved me being amongst people that drank. So I actually chose jobs where I could sort of hide my drinking among the people I worked with and amongst the, the culture there. Because I had a lot of pub jobs where I used to, everyone was drunk by locking and we used to have our you know our mouths over the beer taps every night gulping down having beer competitions we even had a sign where if you went and said can I see the captain it meant you went downstairs and did a line of coke off a picture of a captain oh my god <laughs> yeah everyone go oh go and see the captain everybody knew what that meant yeah that was in one pub, pub in Brighton I mean I was a waitress there's my classic story you know it sounds quite innocent these jobs but they always ended in sort of calamitous situations for me like that job ended up with me in a blackout round some work colleague's house squatting on a white carpet and their mum finding me and me having to quit the job the next day because everyone had found out about it. So there was always some booze-related story no matter what I did. I did work for a Millennium Bug company once, which was actually a complete con. Um, I was selling people like CDs so their uh, their computers wouldn't break on the Millennium, but apparently it was all total bullshit. Anyway, uh, at the Christmas party there, I snogged a married man. I told the boss that he was a con man and then I did get sacked. And it's weird office environments. Let's quickly talk about that, Louise. In those environments, you're with people that you don't know all day, every day, for five days a week. And it's a very odd situation to be in, isn't it, don't you think? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right there. And and then it kind of creates, especially something like advertising, or well, I suppose in any job, it creates an enforced intimacy in a way and yes. then when you so you're kind of all in it together and then if you add drink to that then that becomes skewed and you end yep. up you know with the wrong person or just in really embarrassing situations and everything becomes sort of twisted and unprofessional as yes. opposed, it's like the opposite of what it should be yes yeah, so you've done all these unprofessional things and then you've got to go in the next day and pretend to be professional it creates some very very weird situations we used to have somebody at one office i worked at who would go in and do a poo on the toilet seat at work and then come out and nobody knew who it was. It was like a secret poo person, the secret plopper, we called them. I mean, what sort of environment are you working in where there's someone you know really well that you work close to every day and you know it's someone in the office and we had to like set up cameras and stuff and find out who the plopper it was. And did you find yeah, out who it the was the guy? Plopper? It was the guy from the, um, from the postal room was doing it, was going into the ladies' toilets and doing a poo on the seat. <laughs> Isn't it weird? Leaving his special parcel behind. He was, yeah, he was probably <laughs> drunk or hungover. <laughs> needed needed to do the grog bog. Oh, teaching was the only job I ever had, Louise, where I didn't drink a lot. I was teaching English as a foreign language in Thailand, and the Thai women don't really drink. And nobody at work drank, no, after work drinks, parties or anything. I never drank at my work in Thailand. That just shows if no one else was doing it, I didn't do it. So it wasn't me bringing the booze into the workspace. It was the workspace creating it. So actually, I never felt it necessary to drink when I was working as a teacher in Thailand, which is really interesting. And then after that, I worked selling jewellery in the markets in France. And of course... Louise, I was next to the wine guy every morning and I would have little sips of red wine all morning until lunchtime and then I'd pack up and then we'd start drinking all afternoon and sit in our market spaces. I just drove around all summer drinking red wine and passing out in one medieval village and then going to the next one the next morning. It was a brilliant time, but I was probably over the limit when I was driving around, but it was so normalised in that French culture that I never, ever once stopped to question it. It's amazing, really. That is so interesting that you took the alcohol out of the workplace in Thailand teaching you just got on with it and you're professional and doing your job and probably enjoying it and and then swap careers back to a boozy one and you're 
you're well into that culture well again. In. Just shows yeah. you how huge the influence of your work can be. Yeah. So every job I ever had until I quit drinking was all about the social aspect of it. The bonding over a few bevies, letting my hair down. Work was an excuse to get stuck in and hangovers were why I never achieved any work goals in my life. There was I did probably didn't do enough blue sky thinking, Louise, and I wasn't very good at photocopying either. But being someone that liked to drink combined with working environments that promote alcohol was a really toxic combo for me. This amalgamation of two different worlds could easily propel someone that enjoys the odd tipple into an alcoholic. Jobs can really cause people to drink more. That's exactly what we're saying. Yeah, that that's it in a nutshell. And and it's a and it's effect that you you don't really think of at the time because you just going along with what everybody else is doing. So, yeah, we can be very easily led. Us drinkers. Us boozers, yeah. Us boozers. Boozy workers. Yes, yeah, so whether you're drinking to cope with stress because you hate your job or just to wind down or because you want to fit in, doing so can be the start of a very messy battle. Alcohol during work hours and after a long day can have a huge impact on how we function. Aside from the obvious, the fake illness and the not showing up, there are many ways alcohol and hangovers affect work. Let's just have a look at some of them, shall we, Vic? Yeah, just have a quick quick run through here, guys, of the obvious kind of side effects of boozing in the workplace. It affects problem-solving skills. I mean, Lou, I know my brain fog was absolutely terrible going into work with a hangover. I was pretty much fucking useless at work if I was hungover. I would literally just sit there waiting for the day to be over, trying to think of as many excuses as I could to leave. So it says problem-solving skills. I mean, I had no skills at all, let alone any problem-solving skills. So that's number one. Yeah, and I'd just like to add exactly the same hangover at work, showing my face, but literally doing no work at all for that day, just pretending yeah. to work. So, And I was being paid. And yeah. I'm going, a client is paying money for me to be there, and I'm literally doing nothing because I'm too ill. Yeah. Yes, so that is a huge one. Um, anxiety. You can't read a situation when you're not feeling mentally strong. Your judgment is impaired and you can't handle a meeting with lots of people. You, you've got the fear, basically. Yes, you've got the fear. Like, imagine trying to ha- converse with someone when you're feeling that hungover with that much shame, but you've got to talk about some bloody office situation that's going on. I mean, it'd be a nightmare. Antisocial behaviour. I've put in there street fighting and swearing at bouncers. I mean, I did do things like that, even if it was a pretend street fight. Street or stripping. I once fell into a water fountain on a work night out and decided just to take all my clothes off and go swimming in it in front of all the bosses and everything. And the next day, of course, I was so embarrassed. And they were all looking at me like I was completely mad. But I just thought it was funny at the time. But of course, now I look back and go, oh, my God, no wonder I got sacked from so many places. What a legend. I'm a legend. Yeah, what a legend. I did. I thought I was a legend. I came bursting out of the water with like part of the ornament that was floating in the bottom of the of the fountain, holding it to the sky like an amulet. <laughs> <laughs> like, look at me, the legend of the fountain. Rising out of yeah, the water. Yeah, like half naked. In my own brain, things like that were really funny. But now I realise it was mental. Oh, here we have um, unwanted sexy time with workmates, which uh, I think you have a story about that. Vic. Yes, I do. That there was, there was one situation where I slept with this guy that I really fancied at work and I we'd gone out for the night and I'd got really drunk and he'd come back to mine and I can't run, remember much about it, but I remember in the morning feeling like, oh yeah, I've scored and I really like him and perhaps he likes me. Like, how foolish am I to think that because someone had sex with me, they possibly liked me. Like, that was back in the day where I true thought love. that was true. Yeah, of course he didn't really care. But I remember going into work thinking, oh, I'm going to see him and I was really excited and maybe we could have a snog, you know, at lunchtime and being all nice. And I went up to him and I said, oh, hi, hi. I think his name was James. Hi, James, how are you? And he looked at me and went... Jog on. <laughs> that is the saddest. That is so yeah. sad. And so if you're not from all... England, jog on just means like, you know, pack your bag, piss off, you are nothing. It was like the most biggest cut down you could ever have. And I remember just feeling so sad and embarrassed. But you were all starry-eyed. I was all starry-eyed nice. and all in love. Jog on. That's what you said. That's all he had for you. That's, That's all he had. so awful. Isn't that awful? So, yeah, unwanted sexy time with workmates is just like the worst thing you can do. And dealing with it the next day, it's all right if it's a one-night stand and you never have to see with them, see them again, but then you've got to deal with it at work. It's a bloody nightmare. And that's why they've got that phrase, don't dip your pen in company ink. Yeah, don't dip your pen in company ink, people. That's true. <laughs> 
So concentration, no focus, reaction times, unable to do quick thinking, which is obviously going to be so dangerous in manual jobs. I know we're talking a lot about office work here, but imagine being hung over and not being able to work machinery properly. Um, that could lead to so many accidents. Flying a plane, perhaps? Yeah, flying a plane, exactly. Met so many areas that are more risky than office uh, potential yeah, photocopy yeah, accidents. Get, yeah, or <laughs> stapler, through, stapler through your finger. <laughs> The pins in my eyes. The pins yes. in my eyes, mother. Yes. So also we have bad relationships with colleagues and people getting fed up because not everyone is a, a booze hounds like we were. Yeah. There, there are actually people in offices with careers doing work getting on with it and they're going to get very very fed up with your antics very quickly I could never understand those people that were there to work no, I, I didn't thought, miss oh, I didn't mix with boring them boring bastards no, no I didn't mix them at all so days off and generally not having any motivation is course number seven which is going to affect your work fitness that's a really good way of describing it your work fitness is going to be affected you are not going to be functioning well so you are not going to do well in any area of your job all these things mean you won't be working as well as you should alcohol is most likely going to affect your skill, your performance in whatever job you do. You're probably annoying your workmates and your excuses are running out. Telling Carol from accounts that your car broke down in Swindon and you're on a tow truck on the M4 is a hangover lie that might not work five weeks in a row. P.S. Hello, Carol. I always felt like I was letting people down when I did stuff like that, Lou. It was horrible. I know I was letting myself down as well, but that, that feeling of letting your work colleagues down was really overwhelming. We put it out there to the Cuppa community to find out what workplaces had the most toxic booze cultures. And the response was amazing. People had so much to say about this topic. This is from everyone on Cuppa. This is, I've deciphered this little list myself. So it's not a professional list. Don't go online and check my list because you'll, you'll only find it's wrong. These are the true stats. This is stats. my list. The, no, true, these are the true stats. The true stats. Yes, you know, everyone knows that me and Lucy get all our stats from our bottoms. Um, <laughs> so, yes, chef, the chefing environment. There is a brilliant film called Boiling Point with Stephen Graham, my favourite Geordie Scouser accent, who I never know which he is. Scouser, I think. We're big Stephen Graham fans. We're big fans, Stephen Graham yeah, fans, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a one-shot documentary. It's filmed in one shot. It's absolutely incredible. And it's a chef working in a busy kitchen and it's about his kind of downfall and how the night just completely disappears around him. And it has a bit to do with addiction as well. Highly recommend that. But chefs, whenever I worked in kitchens, the chefs were always hungover, always smelled booze and were always really aggressive and not very functional with each other. Yeah, it certainly is a high-pressure industry. What well, we got number nine, Louise? Coming in at number nine, we've got working from home, that old classic, the modern quandary. God, yes, it is a bit of a modern quandary mm. after we're creating our own drinking environment in, in that situation. At number eight, we've got the entertainment industry, of course. I mean, if you're out and about, if you're a pop star, or famous like me, Louise, because I get recognised in Kmart nowadays a that's pure right. pop star like Entertain me and, and professional entertainers yes exactly. that's what I wanted to be when I was older was a professional entertainer wasn't it the women in the windows are professional yeah, entertainers they, aren't they? you've achieved your goal what's the number seven Louise uh, police force yes Definitely. police force we, we've made this up from your comments people so we're going to read a few out in a minute but the police force came up quite a lot at number six, we've got teachers, loads of teachers on Cuppa saying it is a really inbuilt industry where people go out after work and just want to let their hair down after the long week of dealing with annoying children. That's true. High tension, high pressure. Yep. In at number five, we have flight attendants and pilots. That's a bit of a scary one. Mm. We'll go into that in we a minute. We won't think good, about that when we're on We don't want to think about next. that when you're on a plane. Do not think about that. <laughs> no. Um, farming, manual labour, mining and construction. I've put them all in one. They all came up a lot, especially where we live here on the sunny coast. You have the fly-in, fly-out culture where people work on oil rigs and their partners work away a lot. So the partner is left at home, tends to drink more when their where partner's not here. And the one that goes away, when they come home, it's like a celebration. So everyone drinks together. So no matter what's going on in that situation, alcohol is very, very often involved. In at number three office jobs especially sales that's high pressure again oh, yeah and recruitment a cr recruitment is apparently quite a yep. boozy one isn't it and a yep. sort of druggy one as well maybe doing a lot of coke in that sort of business as well estate agents as well they were bad i was a estate agent once they were all on the drugs you were you were 
You were a good assistant, though. I was selling. Yeah, you were doing well at it, but you were badly behaved. I was very badly behaved. I wasn't selling drugs. I was. That was a joke. Just houses. Just in case. Yeah, just houses and apartments. Yeah. Um, Number two, surprisingly, was nursing and aged care. Because guess when you're caring for others, there's a lot of responsibility, and you're going to want to numb that out at the end of the day. Yeah, but of course, also the potential for dangers and high risk there as well. Yeah, and sadness. Dealing with sadness. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And what have we got? In number number one, one, the top of the list is hospitality. So hotels, resorts, restaurants. Yeah, so same as the chefing there. Hospitality jobs. Oh, my God. Anytime I ever worked in a hotel, especially if it was a resort in the middle of nowhere, you know, the, the culture there was very, very toxic. Everybody was sleeping with each other. There was always some controversial scandal going on between someone in the kitchen and somebody that works as a waitress. And it was just messy. It was messy hospitality for me. And again, as we mentioned earlier on, it's that kind of enforced intimacy in the yes. workplace. And then in, in that industry, throw in the booze and, and other things and um, recipe for some messiness. Let's put it that way. Definitely. Um, so we just wanted to read out a few people wrote in. I put it out there onto Cuppa and Instagram to say, look, have you got any work-related... Nurses, we just want to thank you for everything you do. We are ShiftKey.com. Log on today and connect to open PRN shifts in your area. Work when you want, where you want. You can even get paid next day. ShiftKey.com. Start today. misdemeanors that you want to tell Lucy and I or Louise and I about your work cultures and and so that we could make up this list and find out a bit more about those environments that seem to be so toxic. What's the first one, Lou? Uh, So we've got a story from a flight attendant who contacted us and she said she was so hungover, she spewed up on the carpet inside a hotel door. Then she claimed food poisoning. Then the airline had to call someone off standby and put them in a taxi, which was a couple of hours ride away. So it caused a huge delay for 360 passengers, stuffed up all the time slots for runways, air traffic, catering and the cleaning crew, ground crew, both overseas and local. Not to mention the knock-on effects of the next week or so because most aircraft were on a very tight turnaround. So it took ages to make up for the big delay. So that is just so scary to think of the knock-on effect of one hangover and one inability to turn up for work, (laughs) affecting hundreds and hundreds of people, small and huge ways. And it's terrible. I never considered anybody else when I was hungover. I say I let people down. Well, I really felt like I was letting myself down. But there's a perfect example of someone... One hangover is causing repercussions throughout the entire company for a week. It's just because you're hung up because you drank too much industry. alcohol. Yeah. The whole industry is fucked for a week. Planes are grounded. It's crazy. So, yeah, the, the next one we've got is the medical profession, which was on the list. There's a, somebody contacted us who was in paediatric palliative and end-of-life care in the UK, which, of course, is a tough gig. Um, if a child passed away or something really tragic happened, they all used to get together and get absolutely bladdered um, just to deal with the pain that they were all going through at work. But now she said she realises that that was a trauma response. So she started a new tradition of letting balloons go into the sky and feeling the pain instead of numbing it out. Well, isn't that lovely? Like that just shows you can change these traditions in these workplaces, which we will talk a little bit about later. You can change things up a bit. It doesn't have to stay stagnant with these cultures forever and ever. You can be the one who makes these positive changes. And we just thought that was lovely that she'd changed that tradition right there. Yeah, that's so true. And giving people an opportunity to respond to trauma and to to really high high stress work situations with something a little bit more healthy than um, self medication. Yeah, process yeah. it rather than numb it out. Process it exactly. We have here someone who worked in animal rights, and they also worked in the care industry as well. And uh, they say they would always hear people saying things like, "I can't wait to get home and have a beer, gin, wine." booze basically yeah get uh, numbed out and that's something that's common in any job that requires empathy and compassion is 
something called compassion fatigue, aka secondary PTSD. So caring for people and seeing the trauma of others or human or animal can have a massive impact on somebody, a worker in, in that industry's mental health. And then, of course, what's on hand to um, numb that out is booze. Yeah. Um, somebody else said they had a client in the music industry. They had to speak to him in the morning because if they wanted if they wanted answers by lunchtime, he was too incoherent to get any sense out of him. I mean, that just shows someone was drinking all day and couldn't function at all. So they're working fifty percent of their possible workload is being done. So it just shows that like, it's complete disaster. Um, somebody else was on an office night out twenty two years ago. Ended up sleeping with a colleague despite having zero attraction to him. Of course, I never was attracted to anybody when I was drunk. I just thought anybody would do. She was so sick and ashamed the next morning. She had to go to work via the pharmacy to get the morning after pill. Then had to sit next to the dude all day with crushing anxiety and self-hatred. Just a really horrible, messy situation. And then afterwards, she's added a little note to that message to say, anyhow, I'm most thankfully sober and currently researching venues for my son's 21st birthday. So she actually, the morning after pill didn't work and she had a son from that office colleague one night stand, which is, she said he's a lovely boy and she came into the world from such a, he came into the world from such an awful mistake, but he's her world. So it was a really terrible thing and a horrible story, but she got a beautiful son out of it. So we liked that happy ending we there. We loved the happy ending on that one. That was meant to be, that 20, 21 year old boy was definitely meant to be here. So yeah. I love that. That's classic. And we have a nurse uh, who was saying that there used to be a massive drinking culture 20 years ago. It was definitely a very much a work hard, play hard mindset. They'd go out straight from work, sometimes in their uniforms to help with the flirting slash pulling men. Yes, that would work. Yes, go, so go out in the nurse, nurse's outfits um, and get absolutely hammered, rock up back on the ward at 2am, pissed up to see their friends who were still working for a laugh, go home, sleep for two hours, then back in for an early shift, probably still drunk with alcohol in their system and then be dealing with patients and high risk situations. Crazy. So again, but that was that's the, was the norm, and I'm sure. Yeah, her and her work colleagues at the time didn't even bat an eyelid, and that felt probably very normal. Uh, this was a very Australian one. There's a boy that wrote to us. He said, "When he was 19, I took a summer job mustering feral goats in a station in Pilbara. I mean, I have no idea what mustering goats involves, but I'm sure it's very hard work." <laughs> he said he was working with two bachelors who couldn't cook, and so instead he was eat- he drank six emu exports each night and shared a pack of cigarettes for dinner. He lost 10 kilos in five weeks, and he thought it was amazing. He was paid in beer and cigarettes and took home. $900 for 14 hour days looking back he doesn't know how he survived <laughs> so there you go yeah, so every environment ex- example of work culture just informing complete lifestyle there and yeah. just so unhealthy it's untrue but yet he would have obviously had to go along with what everybody else was doing so yeah pretty pretty toxic that I think one. I probably would have survived on beer and cigarettes for quite a few years back there I, I think I would have managed it and I'd have been mustering those goats in the mornings oh I love like, a good like a goat. trooper oh yeah goat mustering goat mustering in Pilbara yep uh, and we have um uh, another woman who was working as a stripper for six years and she drank so much every shift that she had to stagger her days of work. So she'd work three nights, but with a day off in between to cope with the hangover. Yeah, so, so she's she, actually organising her work around her alcohol. Yeah, that's right. Um, another lady went out with the company director, gave him a piggyback. He fell off at the conference the next morning. She had to face him with a sling and a black eye and she was so hungover with a grazed cheekbone and hiding her black eye with her side fringe. I mean, standing up there with the shame surrounding her. Awful. Love the side fringe. Very yeah. handy for the moments yes. of shame there. Yeah. Especially, I actually had a really long um, Human League style side fringe oh, with yes. a short on one side, massive long side fringe on the other. So that was always good to hide behind. That's dating me a bit, isn't it? Human League. But anyway, yeah. they were good. Um, yes, someone else who worked in entertainment, so booze was everywhere. And they produced this another random one, a Russian clowning show they produced in New York. And for one event, they filled the water cooler with vodka and handed out shots. And he said he had to be carried out and couldn't even remember his own address to get home. So I don't know where he ended up. God, but... imagine not being able to remember your own address. <laughs> Coming That's pretty to, bad, isn't it? And then some Russian clowns yeah. jumping out on him. How to freak you out. <laughs> Um, one lady messaged me. This was my favourite message that we got because it was so sincere and poignant. 
I'm a police officer, she said. We are all riddled with PTSD and mental health issues because of work and trying to maintain a healthy home life. Alcohol abuse and suicide are rife, sadly. She said she's lost a few friends who were too embarrassed to admit they had an issue. Um, as they were meant to be the strong ones. I mean, that's an issue in itself. You're trying to be the strong. You're, try- you're a police officer, so you've got to put on this sort of bravado. She said, under the uniform, we are all just humans trying to prop everyone else up while our own lives are silently falling apart. She said, there's a huge drinking culture within the police, probably prescription drugs too, and there's minimal support for those suffering and a massive stigma and shame around asking for help. So, yeah, you knew something. You knew yes, a police officer so as well, didn't you? That's an issue that was um, pointed out to me at a festival about a year ago. I met a woman there who was an, an ex-police officer and she said that the p- level of PTSD in the in that area and also in the forces is so heightened. It's just so widespread and it's a, yeah, a major problem. It's not talked about. There's not enough help. And one of the ways of... Uh, Solving this for people who are suffering is, yeah, just through numbing out again with alcohol and and turning to booze for self-medication. So, yeah, it's a it's a major problem. Yeah. There are so many reasons why people drink in the workplace, as we said there. Like we've covered so many jobs. In fact, I couldn't think of a job, Lou, that doesn't involve drinking. I had to scan my brain. I mean, there's that one in Thailand that I did, but I can't think of a work culture that isn't boozy. That's that definitely, and not certainly not in any of the areas that I worked in, or or you did it usually in, unless you're working in a rehab. Yes. that's about it. Yeah, that's about <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, so some of the people, pe- the reasons people drink in the workplace are to cope with stress, with nerves, to impress clients, for fitting in because everyone else is doing it, to relax because you want people to like you, and simply just because it's part of the culture there. For me, I wanted alcohol to make me feel like one of the team. But it actually caused the opposite. It made stress worse and people got annoyed with me and I lagged behind and I never got promoted because I was always always overdoing it. Alcohol never ever did what it promised in the workplace. It never made me more liked or more accepted. I never excelled in any, in any of my workplaces because I was either too pissed or too hungover to do a good job. I missed out on having a career. It stunted my mind and my ability to look forward. Did you feel the same, Lou? Do you think it caused you to not live up to your full potential in the workplace? Yeah, that is so true. And yet at the time, probably I thought, oh, I'm going to go to this lunch with with um, everyone from the agency because I'm going to be seen and I'll be networking and I'll be doing doing that. But nothing, no good ever came of it. No, because no, you're no. fantasising about the alcohol, making you into this kind of more wild, interesting person. Exactly. And and the reality, so in my mind was all with my power shoulders and my power suit and I'd go out and sip fine wines. But the reality was by the afternoon I was falling off my chair in the office and the floor was coming up and hitting me in the face and didn't know how I got there. It was definitely not that. So, yes, I didn't connect as well um, to my work colleagues. Definitely it affected me financially because um, I wasn't able to move forward in my career as as I would have been able to if I wasn't drinking. I would have been able to think more clearly and make better decisions. Um, Yet lots of hangovers, lots of days off, anxiety, the fear, uh, inability to plan ahead or have any sort of career plan at all. I didn't even know really what that was. It was just, I'm at work. I'm just going to get through work so that I can get to the end of the week and get bladded. Yeah. So I was very much in the moment. um, Yes. Which in, in the... Now we say live in the moment and it's wonderful. But in that instant, I was just stuck in the moment of where the next drink or the next party or the next feel good thing was going to happen. Because And that's because we're both very similar drinkers and very similar people is that we used alcohol as part of our identity and we didn't recognise ourselves out of that, out of that sort of realm of being the party girls. So, of course, we thought that was expected of us and therefore we had to put on the show wherever we went. And we were both very similar like that. It was that it became so ingrained in us growing up and and as we became workers in the force that we just carried on that behaviour that we'd been doing since we were teenagers really yeah that's that's so true and because we didn't feel good enough or worthy enough as if we didn't have enough to offer we had to make ourselves more extrovert because I I discovered when I got sober I'm not actually that extrovert 
No, I, the I've booze got, makes I've got you. more introvert traits. Yeah. And, and so I would behave, I'd have to sort of drink more to be, be this kind of loud, exciting person. Yeah. But that's, my company probably didn't want a loud, exciting person. They just wanted someone that would write some TV commercials that the client would buy hmm. and uh, make them some money. They didn't care whether I was loud and brash and entertaining they just wanted the work done and it's funny when I came to see you at work when I was younger I did work experience at Louise's office in London the only reason I wanted to go into advertising it wasn't because I had any interest in the job it was because I saw you drinking champagne at lunchtime I was like well any job that drinks champagne at lunchtime I'm in I'm going to train up for this and I'm going to it was nothing to do with me wanting a career in advertising it was just me wanting a career in alcohol in Boothtown yeah. and I've just remembered Beaujolais Nouveau Day we got the day off Oh, yeah, for, for, for a special hey, wine hey day. Hey, everyone, it's Beaujolais Nouveau. Let's all stand in reception and drink really disgusting red wine that hasn't been um, aged properly and is all oh, weird and horrible God, and have tummy the aches. The whole day? Yeah, the whole day. Oh, my God, that's mental. Yeah, it is mental. But, yeah, no wonder you wanted to be in that industry. Yeah. So it's pretty clear, even though lots of people are entrenched in a work culture that is unhealthy, we carry on and accept it as part of the job. Drinking has huge impact on us and it makes us pretty shoddy employees. Long boozy lunches with clients mean the afternoons are a write-off and overindulging at weekends means the first half of the week is definitely a struggle. Yeah, it so is. The cycle of working and drinking can become so tiresome and harmful that in the end it may force lots of people to question and potentially search out sobriety. So what happens when you get sober, Louise? That's the question. That's the question everyone wants answered. How does giving up the grog affect our work fitness? How did you feel after getting sober, Louise? What was the effect on your your production? Well, uh, when I got sober, it was pretty much instant. Within a few days, I started to feel better. I started to have a clearer head. So, yes, I I had a change of career. I discovered who I was and what I really wanted to do. Um, I accessed music and I became a, a singer and I studied music. Uh, I got a music degree even. So it was it was incredible. And in the, and the time when I, in between that, when I was still working in advertising, I was so much more productive. I took it so much more seriously, had a lot more success. And then, yes, because I really got to know myself, I realised that the performing arts and singing and music was what I really wanted to do. And it, it's been a long road. So that so what you're saying there is that all of these years that you worked in advertising, which was how many years, Louise? Um, I think probably about 20 years. So you were repressing your true calling the whole time because of alcohol. Would you say that's correct? Yes, I would say that's correct. That's I would say that's correct. And um, there is a book called The Artist's Way that talks about, um, in inverted commas, shadow careers. And these are careers that um, creative people take. Uh, Advertising is a classic one um, that you, you can be creative, but you're not actually. So there's a lot of novelists and, and, and writers and film directors and people like that who work in advertising and then they eventually, if they are lucky enough, get to do the career that they really wanted to do. But there's many other industries where that happens. So that was one of the major things that happened to me is, is A, I found out who I was and, and then discovered what I wanted to do. And then a really important part is I had the tenacity and I had the brain clarity to actually do the tasks that were required of that. So yeah, to so get like into study, university study and music the, school yeah. and all, all of those things, you know, step at a time that, that, that I did. So, um, so it's amazing. It's like, so you gave up drinking, you went to AA, you did the work, you learned all the tools that you needed to be a sober person. And then as your brain function came back and the brain fog lifted and you started to feel comfortable within your sobriety, what you're saying is then things started to change organically and naturally, Was would you say? Definitely. Yes. And it was it was like a follow the bouncing ball, the next step, the next step. And again, at each turn, I had the the work ethic to do what was needed. I used to just sit around talking about it in the pub and talk, oh, I'm going to do this. So I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. Didn't do any of it. Whereas at this point, um, I was able to to put my money where my mouth is and actually turn up and do the things required. Yeah, because you're get. capable, you've got time. You've got time to do the work that you want to do. And because you have a passion for something, it makes it a lot easier. And you can find out where your passions lie when you're sober. Exactly. And and that is a good point. You, you do have more time and you're able to grasp new skills, learn things, study. 
Um, I had a relationship sober as well. So I experienced um, a marriage, sober marriage, which was an incredible experience and um, getting to know someone properly and doing it all the right right way around rather than just waking up and going, hello, I think I must love you because we've just slept together. So we must be in love and let's get married. Because I've allowed you to put your penis into my vagina. (laughs) Now, therefore, everything's okay. We're all happy. Let's get married. But yeah, of course, that's not the case. And I found found my tribe of people. So that was through AA um, and through other groups, meditation groups, all that sort of thing. And I found people that I wanted to hang around with. Yeah, because that's so important part of it as well. Because actually, when you're in that work environment, you're with people all the time for all that, you know, for tw- you know, 12 hours of the day sometimes. And perhaps they're not people that you'd usually hang out with, but you're sort of stuffed into this environment with them, which causes this other toxic on- culture on top of the one that's already there. Because perhaps they're not the type of people you'd usually spend your time with. And that causes other repercussions as well, doesn't it? For me, it changed everything work-wise when I became sober. I hadn't really had a successful job. I hadn't really worked. I'd worked in pubs and bars. I'd flitted from place to place, kind of just about keeping my head above the water, just about having enough money to survive and sort of pretending to have a career, which is what I did. I worked on the markets for 15 years in the end, selling jewellery, because it was a way that, you know, if I was hungover, I didn't have to turn up if I didn't want to. I could just not go because I was running my own business. Running your own business can sometimes be a good way to hide your drinking for many years. But when I stopped drinking and I got sober, my brain function came back and I was capable of doing all the things I'd never done before. You know, and I didn't realise that I had a, a passion for sobriety and a passion for writing. Of course, I mentioned many times on this podcast that I literally started writing stuff down the day that I gave up drinking. Suddenly, my brain was working again. It was really satisfying. I could really write how I felt. I'd never done that before. And of course, I had the time to do so. I wasn't occupied with wine o'clock or all of the other things that come into your brain, like take over your brain when you're a big drinker, which is pretty much the next drink. And sobriety gave me the feeling that I had the world at my feet. I could choose what I wanted to do. I could have done anything. I felt like the world is my oyster. I felt like you you could have thrown anything at me and I would be able to do it now, which is incredible compared to what I was like. I was just a lazy sort of hungover person, never wanted to do anything with no motivation at all. And now I could really do still feel like I could do anything. Yeah. And I stopped doing things I didn't enjoy. You're able to work out what is good for you when you're sober and work out what fills your cup, which isn't alcohol, of course. And it made me feel like a more functional citizen. So all of these things sort of layer on top of each other. So not only do you feel good, you're you're functioning well, your brain is going well, your health feels better. So therefore you start achieving the goals that you had in place and that makes you feel good. And it's like this amazing circle of health and fitness and wealth that just keeps going and going because you're just adding onto the pile with everything that you do. And you're almost unstoppable sometimes, aren't you, Louise, when you give up drinking? Because it makes you feel proud of yourself as well. You're like, oh, my God, I'm actually achieving something for the first time ever. And whether that's because you're doing pottery and you're enjoying doing that because you've changed a career or because you're just doing something you love, that is going to make you feel good. And feeling good is going to make you want to continue your sobriety, which is going to make you want to do more things. So it's just this really brilliant cycle that you get into. It's just so much better for you, this whole work environment, if you are a non-drinker. And, and there are so many gifts. It's like the confidence cycle keeps yeah. keeps going. And you will be so surprised at the gifts that you have that you didn't even know. They're just completely dormant and they start sprouting out. And yeah. interests that uh, there was like Lucy was saying um, on the Drinking at Home podcast where she discovered she loved knitting. She had yes. no idea and she would never, there's amazing things that come up and you go, oh my God, I love knitting. It's yeah. amazing. It it's brings me like, joy. It's like a caveman thing. It's like a tribal thing that suddenly I think as humans, we are all creative and we're all artistic and we don't have to repress it anymore. And it starts, sort of, as you say, it's like sprouting out of us and we, we need to use our bodies and our minds to create. And it's really fascinating to see, even on Cuppa, we see all people doing, trying new things. There's a painting group on there. There's a pottery group. People are writing People are doing all these things they've never done before. And it really is a much better way of living in general, I think, Louise, not only in our work, but also in our day to day lives. Yeah, that sense of fulfillment. Yes. Let's just say it's definitely better. 
Being sober and working is a game changer. It provides you with a new energy and a clear head. It means you might excel in the job you've had or give you the strength to jack that one in and do what you've always wanted and try a completely new career. Yeah, for me, it gave me what I do now, the ability to help others and share this amazing message. And for Louise, it's given her the power to follow her heart and, of course, change her job and completely change her life. And I think it will do that for a lot of people. Yeah, that's so true. My life completely shifted, as I say, April the 4th, 23 years ago. As I said earlier, I discovered so much about who I am, what I'm good at. I can say no to things now that I don't want to do. As Vic said earlier, you don't, don't, we don't have to do the things. We don't have to go along with what we went along with before. And it's given me the confidence to strive for my dream and uh, become a professional singer, musician. And as I said, yeah, give me the, the staying power to do what is needed. Yeah. So. It changes everything, doesn't it? We've got some top tips for you here today because we just want to go through a little bit as well on the top tips of some things that will help you, but also some ways to make your work and and that environment a bit more alcohol-free friendly. Go on, Lou, take them away. Yeah, so if you're an employer, why not try to shift the focus from happy hours and after-work drinks by challenging the vocabulary to... Or changing and challenging. Let's challenge the vocabulary. Yeah, Why challenge not? it. Challenge, challenge it. Challenge your belief systems around this. So we can change the vocabulary to networking. This will instantly make the event less about the booze and more about the work. And if you're sober, remember that you are the one doing something cool. We always say this. You've got to be proud to say no at work functions. Stand tall and lead by example. You might be surprised at how many people at your work want to follow your lead. And also tell your work that you're sober. I think it's really good to be upfront about that and tell everybody that you know there, especially your boss, um, so they are given the opportunity to respect your choices because sometimes people can be very supportive and I think you'll be surprised when they are. You can ask your company to reduce or limit the frequency and quantity of alcohol provided at company events while including more non-alcoholic beverage options for non-drinkers. Lots of tea and cake is a good start. Who doesn't love that? No. Making those who choose not to drink feel accepted is so important. Yeah, and be discerning about the events you say yes to. Like That's another thing. Like Don't go to all the work events if they're going to be really boozy. If you're not comfortable there and you're newly sober, you can avoid these events. If they're not for networking and they're just for people getting pissed, Steve's birthday or, or Karen's going off on holiday, whatever whatever the event is, choose wisely because if you're putting yourself into those work environments when you're not comfortable and you're sober, there's a chance you could you could start drinking and relapse and that's not a great situation to be in. You don't have to go. Um, so make sure you go to the ones that are about work and avoid the others. Yeah. Tell Also, you should tell your co-workers that you've decided to quit alcohol before those major events. This will avoid those uncomfortable interactions later on. They will also, if you tell people, it'll make you more comfortable about going and you could end up challenging the company's work booze traditions. Um, it's a good idea to try and, you know, challenge these musty institutions that have been, you know, instilling all these boozy rules for years and years. A really good way to start doing this is to ask them not to give alcohol as a gift or reward. I remember when I was in sales, Louise, we used to ring the bell and you'd get a bottle of wine and that was your reward for being a good worker. So maybe try and ask your work, can we change these traditions? We prefer massage vouchers, you know, and give me cash. Like If I make a sale, give me some of the money. I don't want a bottle of wine. Give me a hundred bucks. So push with inside that work environment to see if you can change some of those musty old traditions. Yeah. And on that, on, on that point as well, you can also diversify the types of activities and events in the work social calendar by including more alcohol-free options. So this will help also address the issue of alcohol affecting work function as it's, it's only to be gained, good to be gained from here. So, for example, you can ask your employer to add walks, healthy team building exercises, ask for mental health support and wellness courses to go into the diary. They'll get so much out of having a workforce that isn't hungover. Sobriety is not about giving up alcohol. It's about stepping into a new kind of life. Changing your job or reframing your current role will be part of that journey. Don't be scared to try something new. So if you're stuck working at home or in a job you hate, don't drink to make yourself feel better. 
because it won't help. Drowning out the fact that you're unhappy in your workplace will lead to anxiety, depression and a reliance on alcohol. As always on this podcast, if you're unhappy with any aspect of your life, we recommend you seek the help you deserve. Go for some therapy, get to an AA meeting, find a sober friend, sober friend, whatever it takes. And lastly, we want to know that giving up alcohol will be the best thing you could ever do for your career. You'll learn more, have endless motivation, new ideas, better relationships, better sleep, more time and nowhere near so many sickies. So get work fit, people. And watch yourself soar. Like, it's so true, isn't it, Louise? You oh. do. You soar. And you just have no idea what's ahead and what, what you're capable of. It's so wonderful. And here's a great quote. I love this. I chose sober because I wanted a better life. And I stay sober because I got one. So that means in the workplace too. You will have a better working life if you choose to be sober and stay sober. Yeah, that's so true. You've got to stay on track and everything will change. You've got to give it time as well, we must say, mustn't you, Louise? You know, this isn't about short-term sobriety. This is about your life evolving over one year and two years and making these decisions that last a lifetime in that period. And for you and I, you know, I've only been sober four years. I've made huge changes in my life and so have you. And they've all been because we stopped drinking. And so that is such positive impact it has on our lives, doesn't it, Lou? Yep, that's exactly right. And I think it's important to say it is, it's a long game. It's a long-term journey. Yeah. But as I mentioned earlier, the initial re- effects of giving up alcohol, say, in my, in my experience, was literally in a week. Yeah. I felt better than I had ever done in my life. Yeah. So, And then from then, of course, things take time. But um, just the initial, you'll see benefits straight away. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, tell us about them. If you've, if you, you know, at the beginning of your sobriety journey and you've had a change in career, go on to the Cuppa community, cuppa.community on your browser and come on to Cuppa and tell us about your work experiences because they are so interesting. We've really loved doing this topic. Um, I haven't got a movie. I had a movie which was Flight with Denzel Washington, which is about a guy who saves people on the plane but has addiction issues. So that's a really good one related to this topic because pilots and air stewardesses did come up, didn't it? And also I wanted to say a massive thank you to Louise for coming on. I know this has been a bit of a more serious topic today because work, at the end of the day, it's not all about laughter and taking the piss out of each other and being funny. Our work is so important to us. And, you know, me and Lucy have a laugh on this podcast about sobriety and everything. But we just also want to say that these things are important and they affect your life so massively. So so reconsider and reframe your life if you feel the need to in sobriety. But thank you so much, Louise, for coming on. It's been so lovely to have you here. Oh, thanks, Vicky. It's been I've just loved every moment. It's been a total pleasure. And as you said, what an important and huge area that is affected by drinking is is work and career and the workplace. So yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So we hope some of you got some good advice out of that today and, you know, challenge the institution as well. Challenge your work and and tell them about sobriety, because the more you shout about it from the rooftops, the the easier it's going to be for the people that come after you. Thanks so much for listening to everybody. And and I can't wait to get Lucy back here into the booth. I'm sure she's missing it. She's had her Jubilee dress on and she's probably spilled some tea down it, I should imagine, by now. So we'll have her back in a couple of weeks time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Sober Awkward podcast. If alcohol is affecting your life in a negative way, if you're struggling to moderate or your hangovers are causing anxiety, it might be time to reach out for help. Contact your local doctor, a therapist or connect with your local AA or sobriety group. Vic's got one. Yes, go onto Facebook and just search Drunk Mummy, Sober Mummy, the group. Lucy and I both agree that even though this journey can be awkward, it's definitely worth it. And if we can do it, you can too. For more support on sobriety, head to Vic's website, drunkmummysobermummy.com. And Lucy runs an online space to support and inspire single mums. Find out more at beanstalkmums.com.au. Finally, if you've enjoyed the Sober Awkward podcast, don't forget to follow, subscribe, review and share it with your mates. Don't make it sound like they have to, though. No, they do have to. I'm not doing all this for nothing, Lucy. No, no.